0: Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. For this podcast, I get to combine two things I love, horror and cooking. I was supposed to do a podcast with Daniel Klaus about his new film, Wilson, but the interview fell through and I had to scramble to find a new topic— Then I saw the ravishing new French film, Raw, and I thought, yes, I want to talk about cannibal films, and I want to talk about them with a chef, and then I want to share my interview with Stuart Gordon about his play, Taste, that was inspired by a real-life incident of cannibalism. And then I wanted to include an interview with the curator of the San Diego Museum of Man's Cannibal Exhibit. Fate had just served up an opportunity that I couldn't resist. Okay, now before you roll your eyes and think cannibal films are not my cup of tea, let me explain what I want this discussion to be about. Cannibal films, in which people mindlessly slaughter and eat others, or where carnage soaks the screen, are a dime a dozen. But films in which great care is taken with both the filmmaking and the preparation of human flesh for consumption are far more rare, and far more interesting. So that's what I want to talk about, what I call gourmet cannibal films.
1: Notes for gourmet. That's French for a good eater, isn't it, boss? <gasps>
2: <gasps> Gourmets don't belch.
1: Oh, on the contrary, on the contrary, they do. It shows that you are enjoying a meal. <sniffs> Not with your fingers, Spangler!
0: Almost three years ago, I saw Stuart Gordon's play Taste. It was inspired by the infamous Armin Muse case about a German man who placed an online ad seeking a willing victim to be killed and eaten. That in turn inspired me to create a list of gourmet cannibal films for Showbiz Junkies, a site I contribute ten best lists to. For that list, I used French foodie terms to make the distinction between the films I wanted to talk about and the run-of-the-mill cannibal film.
2: Meats, meat, meat, and, and man got eat.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: The stereotypical cannibal film, like Cannibal Holocaust or Motel Hell, is something suited for a gourmand, a ravenous and greedy eater prone to excess, but not too discriminating in what he eats. And there's nothing wrong with feeding that particular appetite with those kinds of gore fests. But once that appetite for gore is satiated, then there's little left to do except seek out something more gruesome and shocking. Again, that kind of horror film has its place and its fans. But I'm interested in a gourmet cannibal film, something prepared for a connoisseur, a person with a discerning palate and who prefers items that are elegantly crafted and of high quality.
1: What you've got to realize is that a clever cook puts unlikely things together, like duck and orange, like pineapple and ham. It's called artistry.
0: So, in order to get into this notion of gourmet cannibal films, I decided I needed to begin by talking to a chef. Well, Zach Salen feels that that title is a bit too lofty for him. He prefers just being called the cook. Hey, Zach, how are you doing?
2: Doing great, doing great. Excited to be here.
0: First of all, you are a cook. You do prepare food. And you've brought, appropriately enough, a collection of your knives for prepping food. Just to kind of get us in the mood for food and for eating and for gourmet food preparation, what have you got here that you're going to be chopping up for us?
2: I uh, just got some uh, some onions, some carrots, some bells, uh, and in my roll, I've got uh, all the tools of the trade, the the knives that all us cooks obsessively sharpen after every shift. And today, just gonna go ahead and pull out uh, one of my chef's knives and get to chopping and talking about the uh, the gourmet cannibalism that is not nearly as rife in film as it should be.
0: <laughs> now, for a chef, you have this large collection of knives here. And are they all for different kinds of things? Or are you of the mind that, you know, you can use different tools for different things?
2: Uh, they all do have slightly different purposes. Some are heavier, better at breaking down a carcass chopping through bone some are lighter and more delicate more used for vegetable work and very fine filigree also have uh, some nice big scary knives like a a chinese cleaver a good seven inch hunk of steel that will terrify anyone trying to mug you <laughs> and then of course the more delicate knives paring knives utility knives blade for every occasion.
0: Very good. And which knife have you pulled out first?
2: I'm going to be using my uh, Friedrich Dick 8-inch chef knife, a nice heavy German steel, something that would be very at home in the hands of somebody like Hannibal Lecter.
0: Very good. And German steel may come in later when I'll be talking with Stuart Gordon about a play called Taste, which is based on a story of a German cannibal. So there we go. Very appropriate. So in prepping food, what would be the difference between prepping something that is a gourmet meal and something that might be served at a fast food restaurant?
2: A lot of it comes down to simply attention to detail and proper technique. Whereas at a fast food restaurant, you might not need all of your slices of onion to be exactly the same size. But when you're cooking gourmet, you want everything to be very precise so that everything comes out perfect. It's much more about the End experience of a fantastic meal, uh, a piece of art that is set down in front of you, as opposed to just something to put in your stomach.
0: In talking about some of these films, there's a notion for me that there's a difference between the gourmet meal prepared by, let's say... Peter Greenaway for The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and more of a fast food kind of cannibal holocaust film. But on a certain level, the fast food film is less nutritious. It doesn't give you anything to kind of mull over after you've eaten the meal. It kind of just goes away quickly. Whereas these kind of gourmet cannibal films leave you with something to chew on after the fact. So how does that compare to cooking?
2: And really any kind of gourmet setting, like I was saying, it's, it's much more about the, the art and the experience of the meal. Really great gourmet food challenges you. It takes you to a place where maybe you haven't tasted those flavors before. Maybe you haven't seen a, a dish prepared exactly like this. Or maybe there's an ingredient that you specifically don't like, but you kind of trust the chef to take you into his arms and and guide you through this new and strange experience. And so just like any other kind of good art, it's something that has to not only be consumed, but considered after the fact. Uh, it takes a while to digest.
0: And also with a gourmet meal, it's something that you kind of want to savor. Like you want to hold it on your tongue for a little bit and like take in the flavors.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's Fast food is something that you just kind of inhale. Again, it's something to to feed you, to get in your belly. Whereas gourmet food really is more about that that catered experience. Uh, One thing I I really like in modern food is the slow food movement. Mm -hmm. People are paying a lot more attention not just to what their food is, but where it comes from and how it's made. And so that really just extends the experience of trying the new food, trying the new dish, uh having that that plate of art set down in front of you. And one of the remarkable things about it is that the art of food is ephemeral in its very nature. It has no point if it's not immediately destroyed. And through the destruction and consumption of it, you're not just eating the the food in front of you, but you're eating the intent of the chef, the, the art of the preparation, and the effort of the entire kitchen that went into making that plate.
0: And let me ask, where do you work?
2: I work over at Bar Kindred in South Park. Uh, we are a death metal-themed craft cocktail bar with a fully vegan kitchen.
0: Awesome. And since we are... On podcast, which is audio only, you can't see the beautiful slices that he's making in this onion. My onions have never looked like that before, I can say that. (laughs) So in talking about some of these films, one film that we kind of mentioned briefly before we started talking was a film called Delicatessen, which is about cannibals, but not your typical kind of gore fest. And you were talking about kind of how that is a bit of a gourmet cannibal film.
2: Absolutely. It it uses cannibalism in in a way to be a lens to look back at society and the the troubles of society in a post-apocalyptic context that is very relatable uh in today's modern times. So, using cannibalism as a device as opposed to as a, an end in and of itself.
0: And in this film, we're set in this kind of post-apocalyptic world where food is scarce. And the kind of the device of the film is, is that it's an apartment complex where I believe he keeps hiring a handyman who keeps getting served up to the tenants. So there's never... As far as I can remember, there's never any really graphic scene of cannibalism or anything, but there's this whole kind of sizing up the guy when he comes in and sharpening of knives and things like that.
2: There's definitely an ominous context that always comes with sharpening knives. And my housemates can attest to this really profoundly. I, I find myself, say, sitting on the couch watching TV and just honing a knife or sending it down a strop and the other day my housemate looked at me and said, "You know, that would be really creepy if you weren't a professional cook." Actually, wait, no, that's still really creepy. Can can you do that upstairs? And so there's there's a threat that is always present when when a knife comes out or is being worked with. And to use that as the device in the the film to really build that tension as opposed to the, the imminent threat of, of mortal danger by physical threat, just the, the imposing presence of a sharp knife or a knife being sharpened.
0: Well, and you've moved on now to carrots. So if you're listening, you're going to be hearing carrots being diced up beautifully again. And I think if I remember right, the director had actually either lived somewhere or knew someone who used to have to listen to knives being sharp. I think he lived above a butcher's shop and he would hear the knives being sharpened every morning. And I think that was part of what drove him to like make that film. So I can see how the knife sharpening would get to you.
2: You either love it or you hate it personally. And I I know this is the way that most cooks and chefs feel. Knife is a tool. It, it can be dangerous. It it can be helpful, but it's not necessarily threatening in and of itself. A knife sitting on a a magnetic strip or in a a block is perfectly safe. It's just sitting there. It's the intent of the hand that wields it. And once you become very comfortable with the knife, then it's it's no longer threatening. It's it's comforting. When I have my knives in my hand, I feel capable, and I don't cutting myself, because I know if I cut myself, that's my fault. It's me losing focus or getting sloppy. Whereas somebody standing next to somebody with a knife is in a place of potentially imminent danger. And so in the kitchen, knives take on a slightly different context. But in a movie like Delicatessen, the intent of the knives being sharpened in front of the the unwitting victim, is definitely a, a powerful image.
0: And this notion of cannibalism, the idea of eating human flesh, is something that is still and pretty much has always been something very kind of taboo in our society.
2: Well, and the, the taboo nature, uh, I think, is is really what strikes at the heart of gourmet cannibalism. It. it as I was saying, uses that lens of cannibalism to discuss further issues. And a great way to start talking about uncomfortable issues is to segue with an uncomfortable topic like cannibalism. It puts the audience uh, in a state of unease and, and readiness for potentially terrible things to happen. Instead of just assaulting them, say, with the, uh, the dinner scene from Hannibal, it slowly builds up to the moment when he reveals to to the guests that they're in fact eating the flutist that played a sour note. And so without that buildup, it's simply blunt instrument. But, but with the buildup, it hones the edge of that revelation into something that can really strike at the heart of the audience, where you slowly realize that the sour note caused that flutus to be eaten and the the real context of insanity that has to live inside of Hannibal Lecter's mind in order to justify something like that. If you're just slapped across the face with it, it doesn't carry, carry nearly the same weight.
0: Well, the other thing, too, is when you see some of these films that deal with, let's say, a lot of the Italian cannibal films tended to deal with, like, tribes that you would find out in the wild somewhere that were cannibal. But when you come into a more civilized society and people are doing these kind of things, in a certain way it almost becomes more disturbingly scary because you feel like it shouldn't exist in the context of a suburban neighborhood like it does in parents or in an elegant restaurant like it does in the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. Uh, We feel a little more comfortable with it, I think, when it's out in some wild jungle setting where we think, oh, well, if we just avoid that, then we're safe.
2: And in many ways, cannibalism speaks to the primal nature of humanity uh, that, that we are, in fact, biological creatures that must eat or be eaten. And it's a lot easier to look at that from a distance. Humans very much enjoy thinking that we're highly evolved, but we've barely got a big toe out of the jungle. And in that context, by, by bringing cannibalism into your neighborhood and, and putting it next door to you as opposed to off in a distant jungle, It makes it much more real and reminds the audience that they are, in fact, just beasts.
0: Another cannibal film you mentioned that you enjoyed was Ravenous. We
2: have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. We need a supportable explanation.
1: Uh Captain John Boyd is about to discover... No one just ends up at Fort Spencer. We come for a reason. Yours being well something he never imagined we have a great sense of camaraderie here at fort spencer <laughs> it's this indian scout told me a curious story wing deagle it's an old indian myth from the north this man eats the flesh of another he <laughs> absorbs the other man's strength ah! No one man must choose we need others. between having dinner man. and being dinner Super
3: Ravenous. Bon appetit.
0: <laughs> what was it about that that appealed to you
2: uh one it's just a very fun movie it plays with itself it doesn't take itself too seriously for the most part and additionally it kind of has two different levels of context where cannibalism goes from something that was a necessity for the characters to something that becomes a pleasure. They find great power in the act of eating others, uh, both literally and figuratively. And as the, the main characters evolve through that movie, the idea of cannibalism goes from... A, an eat-to-live to a live-to-eat contact.
0: And that film, if people aren't familiar, actually is kind of a Western setting of sorts and uh, directed by Antonia Bird, which I'm always happy to see a female filmmaker doing horror, a film that I would highly recommend checking out. Again the smells now here. We've got some onion and some carrots and these carrots are beautifully chopped, all the same size. I need to have you like come to my house to do food prep because <laughs> it's beautiful. Are there any other cannibal films that have come your way that you uh you like or and, and they can be of either nature?
2: One thing that's been crossing my mind a bit is uh sort of the othered cannibal, um the, the non human cannibal, vampires, that kind of thing. And uh, one, one idea that I've been kind of uh, tumbling around since yesterday is the notion that vampires tend to be a very alluring character, an attractive character, a sexy character, and they are cannibals. They, they must be cannibals to survive. It, it is almost not a choice at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that does twofold for the likability of a character like a vampire, because at first... They're not human, so we can already distance ourselves from their motivations and from from the character themselves. But furthermore, it's not a choice. Uh, It's something that they must do. And in vampire lore, even when it is a choice, it's often a a character-defining choice for that vampire that weakens them or or diminishes their, their essence. And so I've been trying to work out some kind of theory as to why monsters are more acceptably are, are more acceptable cannibals than humans, especially when they become more relatable. Uh, the interview with the vampire, watching Lestat refuse to eat anyone, is an interesting character moment. Whereas the the vampire Lestat later in the series or in the terrible subsequent movies <laughs> becomes a a brutal character a, a character that the human or that the audience relates to less as his humanity sort of diminishes but at that point it becomes much more acceptable to watch him eat.
0: Well of course now this raises a subject which could merit an entire podcast all on its own and that would be zombies because technically I never consider them as cannibals because on a certain level they are Oh, you are dissecting that bell pepper in a beautiful way that I've never seen done, I have to say. Oh, that is
2: the best way to break down a bell. Um, Chop off the top and the bottom and then lay it on its side. And you want to slice through the, the now tube of bell pepper you've got. And just kind of roll the knife along the skin as you unravel the bell to take out all the pith and the
0: seeds. That was beautiful. That's like disemboweling something in the most effective way. Now back to zombies. Yeah, zombies. I've had arguments with people who call zombies cannibals, but I feel like when you become transformed into a zombie, you're kind of a different species on a certain level, but you are consuming human flesh, which you previously were. So uh, that could be a whole debate in itself of (laughs) whether that falls into the cannibal category or not.
2: Oh, and I think uh, there's another interesting question there. Uh, about uh zombies eating flesh simply because in most zombie mythos zombies only eat living or very recently dead flesh, mm-hmm. and i can 't think of too many uh cannibal movies oh gourmet cannibal movies, plenty of splatterpunk yeah. where where the cannibal consumes their victim live mm-hmm. and i 'm not sure exactly what that signifies. Uh, in, in a distinction between zombies and living cannibals. But I think that's a, an interesting distinction that, that may have more profound ramifications than, than I realize right now.
0: I would say it probably has something to do with the notion of civilization and intelligence, which is one way that people try to separate themselves from some of the cannibal lore, because we recently had here at um, the Museum of Man here in San Diego had an exhibit about cannibals. And one of the things they pointed out was that the European aristocrats were involved in a lot of cannibalism, but in stuff that is not usually discussed or referred to. So there was a whole kind of uh, medical cannibalism where you would eat ground skull or you would consume blood or things like that. And it was, you could pick these things up at an apothecary. And so this was for the aristocrats, but they would never call themselves cannibals or consider themselves cannibals. That was something that, you know, you found in the West Indies or something. And so there's that hierarchy that you get and that kind of class system.
2: So then the question is, uh, is the cannibal the person who consumes or the person who catches, kills, and butchers? <laughs> uh, if, if it's so easy to separate the context uh, from personal onus, then yeah. Uh, and I think this actually ties into a, an interesting point concerning food. Uh, many people have no idea what goes into food preparation or food production. And uh, an author named Michael Pollan in his book Omnivore's Dilemma brought up an interesting point. Most people know their banker, they know their doctor, but they have no idea who their farmer is. Food is almost this alien substance that simply happens as opposed to a natural and organic thing for a lot of America and for a lot of the world. And we arguably have a much more personally and physically intimate relationship with our farmers. They create the things that sustain us, that we put into our bodies every day, than we do with our banker or maybe even our doctor. And so in that context, it's it's possible that those aristocrats felt that they weren't cannibals because they they didn't see it as human. Mm-hmm. They saw those as medical treatments or as medicines, as opposed to, oh, this was Jerry's skull that I'm now sprinkling on my toast.
0: And they had something mummy's dust, too, I believe, was something... That they collected. But again, it, they're also removed from the actual collection or harvesting phase. They would never have been in the position of either killing someone or going and finding. I, I think part of what they did was actually they found skulls on battlefields, was part of uh, how they harvested some of this. So it didn't necessarily require them killing someone. So there's, there's some very fascinating things in our human history that we don't often get to discuss. Uh, is there uh, anything else that you would want to talk about in terms of a gourmet food preparation that maybe ties into some of these films? I
2: think that a lot of it comes down to ritual, not just both of the preparation, but also of the consumption of food. And in gourmet food, there's... Ask any kitchen hand who has worked in any kind of fine dining context, there's a level of reverie and ritual that goes into preparation, Uh, whether it's just setting up your mise en place at the beginning of the the shift, making sure everything is exactly the way you want it. There's almost a, a meditative aspect to that calm before the storm and... Even on the other end of it, uh, the the diner has sort of a ritual of of going to a fancy restaurant. They they put on their Sunday best, if you will, and sit down. Are are catered upon. This dish finally comes out and is set down in front of them. And there's a a level of respect that ideally the the patron then has for the food, but also a uh, uh, Level of ritual in consuming the food, finishing the meal, and in a lot of uh, the the more highbrow cannibalism films, the preparation of the food and the the eating of the food is very ritualistic uh, there's there's a context that goes far beyond as I was mentioning just filling your belly and with that, I think there's a, a really profound treatment of the way we think about food, not just in the, the context of sustenance, but food in the context of art. Food in the context of, of feeding the soul as opposed to the body, or in addition to the body. And that's just complicated when you're feeding the body with the body. <laughs>
0: There are a few films that are very specifically focused on cannibals who do take a lot of care in prepping food that they serve to a wider public that's unsuspecting. So we have Sweeney Todd, where they make meat pies, and The Untold Story, which is an Asian film in which you get uh, human pork buns. Which, as you, I see you with your cleaver, uh, is very appropriate. So uh, let me ask you this. What might be the best way to prepare and serve human flesh?
2: Uh, well, uh, according to some reading that I've done, uh, human flesh tastes a lot like pork. In fact, there are several uh, tribes that, that were formerly cannibals that refer to humans as long pig mm-hmm. uh, for that very reason. And so I'd say if you were to prepare human flesh, uh, you'd probably want to probably brine it slightly. Uh, a little bit of salt and uh, water with uh, a bit of citrus. And then I would recommend probably cooking it with a uh, sweet flavor, maybe uh, some pineapple or a pineapple rum glaze. Uh, get a nice hock of human and just let that slow roast uh, covered in pineapple. And then uh, enjoy, like you would really any delicious bit of pig.
0: I love that as someone who comes from a restaurant that has vegan food, you, you've you actually looked into some of this in some way, shape, or form.
2: <laughs> oh, well, you know, while I work at a vegan kitchen, I will eat anything that doesn't run fast enough. Uh, plants are easy. They don't run too fast. So so that's uh, that's nice.
0: All right. And you are now finishing up with your large cleaver and some ginger, which you're cutting like paper thin. It reminds me a little bit of Paul Servino in Goodfellas where he cuts the garlic with a razor blade.
2: With ginger especially, it's a very fibrous root. So you want to make sure that you either break up those fibers enough that uh, they'll just kind of break down in whatever you're cooking, or leave chunks large enough that you can pull them out after.
0: Well, Zach, I really want to thank you for coming out and doing some sous chef work for me here, dicing and chopping some vegetables and talking about gourmet cannibal films.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure, thank you so much for having me and, uh, and I can't wait to hear the episode.
0: Zach and I spoke a little bit about some of the titles on my menu of gourmet cannibal films, but I wanna give you all a watch list. So in addition to delicatessen and ravenous, let's start with the newest entry, Raw, from a woman director. And women directing horror always makes me happy. Director Julia Ducournau gives us a film about a young, vegetarian female student at a veterinary school who suddenly discovers a hunger for human flesh.
1: Ah!
0: Ah! Ah! The film doesn't shy away from gore, but what sets it apart is how it explores a familial relationship in terms of coping with that hunger. Duker now cleverly explores the taboo of cannibalism within the context of what proves to be an almost equally terrifying but far more accepted ritual of school hazing. In addition, she mixes in some feminist commentary about female body image and eating disorders that just provide a little more to chew on once the movie's over. Raw is the latest entry to my list, but the film that epitomizes the gourmet cannibal film is Peter Greenaway's delectable 1989 art house favorite, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. This film serves up the supreme example of gourmet cannibalism on screen. Sumptuously shot, superbly crafted, and stunningly acted, this film explores the extremes of human jealousy, cruelty, and revenge. Albert is a brutal crime boss who also owns a swanky restaurant, where he pretends to have manners and know about food.
1: Now you don't eat like that! Let me show you! Oh, imagine you are sucking the little fingers of a lady, or... now you wouldn't understand that since you never get that close to a lady.
0: His restaurant boasts an artisan chef named Richard. Albert's wife Georgina, played by the scrumptious Helen Mirren, grows bored with her brutish spouse and strikes up an affair with a gentle bookseller. The cook covers for the lovers who sometimes conduct their covert affair in various parts of the restaurant while Albert consumes a meal. Okay, I have to Okay, I have to reveal some spoilers here in order to get to the cannibalism because Albert eventually catches on and murders his wife's lover. So, Georgina comes to Richard the chef and asks if he could cook the dead lover, and so begins her revenge. Richard prepares the man's corpse like a work of art, and Georgina presents it to her husband. I've brought you a present. Look, I don't need presents. It's me who gives you presents. You've always known that. Besides, you've never had the, the money to give me presents. And Richard has cooked it for you, under my instructions.
2: Huh? Knowing how you like to eat, knowing how you like to gorge
3: yourself. Jesus! Come
0: No, well, it's not God, Albert.
3: It's Michael. My lover. You vowed you would kill him. And you did. And you vowed you would eat him. Now eat him. What's the matter, Albert? You have your knife and fork. You do know how to use them. Or have all those carefully learnt table manners gone to waste? Try the cock, Albert. It's a delicacy. And you know where it's been.
0: The Cook, the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover is a four-star gourmet cannibal film, so make sure you put that on your shopping list. Cannibal. Taking a lighter, American tone is Bob Balaban's parents, also from 1989, apparently a vintage year for Cannibal Films. In the film, young Michael lives in a model 50s suburban neighborhood with his parents, the perfectly cast Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt. Everything seems perfectly Aussie and Harriet on the surface, but Michael is haunted by nightmares and an uneasy concern over where his cheerful parents get their meat. What are we eating?
3: Leftovers, honey. Leftovers from <laughs> We have
1: leftovers every day since we moved here. I'd like to know what they were before they were leftovers. Before that, they were leftovers to be.
0: Imagine Ward Cleaver cooking flesh burgers on the grill and June cheerfully serving them to the neighbors, and you'll get an idea of the perversely funny incongruity of the film. Balaban puts a glossy, technicolor surface on this disturbingly funny tale of suburban cannibals. Going for something much more serious and disturbing are a pair of Hannibal Lecter films, the Oscar-winning Silence of the Lambs from 1991 and its 2001 sequel, Hannibal.
3: Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. I didn't. No. No, you ate yours.
0: The horror gets amped up, as well as the gourmet food preparation, with Anthony Hopkins taking on the role of Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. In Silence of the Lambs, Hopkins has a memorable scene with Jodie Foster's FBI agent.
1: A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti.
0: Then, in the sequel, we get to see the serial killer gourmet cannibal prepare Ray Liotta's brain for consumption.
1: You see, the brain itself feels no pain, Terry. if so that concerns you. For example... Paul won't miss this little piece here, which is the uh, part of the prefrontal lobe, which they say is the seat of good manners.
0: The nasty chef's trick is that he slices off gray matter while the man is still alive and conscious. Hopkins makes these films a gourmet treat. Next, we travel to Denmark for a return to a lighter tone with a side of irony for the green butchers. The film stars Mads Mikkelsen, who went on to play Hannibal on the NBC TV series. He plays one half of the Green Butcher's team. The two men of the title decide to open their own shop to get away from their obnoxious boss, Holger. Of course, Holger comes back to mock them on their opening day when no customers show up. But on a whim, their old boss orders some meat for a dinner party. One thing leads to another, with an accidental murder leading the men to marinate the corpse and sell them as meat in their butcher shop. And suddenly, chicky wickies the euphemism for human flesh marinated in the special sauce, becomes all the rage in their town. This is another charming and tastefully delivered tale of cannibalism. As Zach mentioned, ritual can come into play in both gourmet cooking and cannibal movies. So in addition to ravenous, there's Jim Mickle's superb remake of the Mexican cannibal horror film We Are What We Are.
1: Thank you for the sustenance we receive, Father, lift us from this world. Blessed are the Lamb, for they are his offering.
0: Yeah. Mickle's film gives us a reclusive family headed by patriarch Frank Parker. He runs his family with a fierce sense of conviction to his ancestral traditions. The film begins as his daughters are forced to assume some horrific family customs.
3: You're going to have to take care of them now. You ready for that? I'm the eldest. It's the way it works. The way it's always worth. It not seem fair. None of it. That's for me to worry about. Not you. What if we refused to do it? We just. We just stopped.
0: The spin Mickle gives this modern tale of cannibalism is to endow it with a religious, Puritan spin. He doesn't shy away from the gore, but unlike the typical cannibal film, he finds unexpected beauty in the brutality. And there's nothing like a classic to show just how stunningly cannibalism can be used in art. There's really just one incident of cannibalism in Julie Taymor's adaptation of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, but it's so impressive that it makes the film worth including on this list.
1: Our is how I mean to you. This one hand yet is left to cut your throats, while that Lavinia her stumps doth hold the basin that receives your guilty blood you know your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad hark villains i shall grind your bones to dust and with your blood and it i'll make a paste And of the paste a coffin I will rear and make two pastries of your shameful heads. And bid that strumpet your unhallowed dam, like to the earth, swallow her own increase.
0: Titus is played by Anthony Hopkins, who once again gets to serve human flesh. It may only be a single scene, but it's so vivid and horrific, yet elegantly executed, that it merits inclusion here. Then there's Hong Kong's The Untold Story that takes its inspiration from real life, or perhaps it's just an urban legend that persists. It's based on a true crime that supposedly took place in 1985 in Macau. Anthony Wong plays a man who kills a family and then takes over their restaurant. The restaurant specializes in pork bao, or steamed pork buns. And perhaps the film's alternate title, Human Pork Buns, will make clear where the cannibalism comes into play. The film is gruesomely violent, but the human flesh is prepared with care and served up to unsuspecting customers. And finally, I want to conclude my gourmet cannibal film list with an indie black comedy from Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff, Eating Raoul. Bartel and Warnoff play Paul and Mary Bland, a couple who want to open their own restaurant. They happen upon a scheme to raise money when Paul accidentally kills an errant swinger who's forcing himself on Mary.
1: Mary, we're both going to end up in prison. No, we're not. We are going to end up in the country with our own nice little restaurant.
3: None of this ever happened.
1: Now, you take this drink to James, and dinner will be ready in five minutes.
2: Mary, I just killed a man.
1: He was a man, honey. Now he's just a bag of garbage.
0: The man's loaded with cash, so the Bland's decide to start luring other swingers to their pad and offing them with a fry pan. (laughs) This works out pretty well until a sexy Latin con man named Raul starts to horn in on their business. The title implies multiple meanings, but I think you can guess how this film, with its wannabe restaurant owners, ends
3: up.
2: I hope you make this a permanent item on your menu. It's French.
3: No, actually, it's more Spanish.
2: Mmm, it's so tender. Yeah,
3: I know.
1: It's amazing what you can do with a cheap piece of meat if you know how to treat it. And of course, the right wine always helps. Mm-hmm. I'll drink
0: to that. What makes this film such a gourmet item is the deadpan performances of Bartel and Warrenoff. Now that you have your viewing list complete, here's something to whet your appetite for cannibalism on stage.
1: Oh, hello there. I'm Stuart Gordon, and I'll be directing the world premiere of Taste at the Sacred Fools this spring. Taste tells the true story of a man who puts an ad on the internet for someone that he can kill and eat. The play shows us their first and last meeting in real time. It's a cooking show you'll never see on the Food Network. A little food for thought. They share an appetizer, and although I can't tell you what that is, I can give you a little clue... It gives new meaning to dinner and to show.
0: Here's my archive interview with Stuart Gordon about his play Taste. Gordon directed Taste back in 2014 at Sacred Fools Theater. He's currently returning to Sacred Fools Theater for a new production of his adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. I got to speak with Gordon about Taste back in 2014, just after the curtain fell on the opening night performance. I also spoke with playwright Benjamin Brand. I began my interview with Gordon, who also directed my beloved Reanimator movie and Reanimator the musical, by asking him what attracted him to Brand's play. Well, it's a
1: cooking show, and I like I like to eat. I think that's always part of its appeal. But it also was when I first read the script, I got physically affected by it. I had to put it down a few times because it was so strong. But when a script has that effect on me. That's always a good sign. I also I love the writing, I love the characters. I thought they were, you know very rich and, and interesting and, and uh, you, you care about them. To me that's always the most important thing about a piece is that you really have to you know, have to care about the people.
0: Now there's a lot of talk within the play about real and about real moments and you're in this very small theater where people are practically in the laps of your actors and you have to pull off difficult scenes. How was that? What kind of a
1: challenge? It's a huge challenge, you know, because uh, especially when you have speeches like that, the audience is not going to accept anything that isn't 100% real. You know, that, that feels authentic. It made it, you know, even trickier than most plays, but I'm lucky that I've got such wonderful actors. You know, Chris McKenna I've worked with several times before, and Donald, is a. it's the first time we've worked together, and I'm, I'm just, he's growing by leaps and bounds. I'm really pleased with his work, too.
0: Talk a little bit about the effects that you had to use. I mean, you, like, the set is actually, has a lot of practical elements to it. There's a sink that really works, there's a stove that really works, you can smell the onions cooking in the beginning. Was that important to you? It
1: was. That was one of the things that drew me to this, is that you know, the idea of having a cooking show where you actually smell the cooking, you know, that's what the thing that theater can do, that movies really can't do, is really engage the senses in a, a, you know, uh, movies are really just optical illusions, you know, but theater is alive, and and so anything you can do to emphasize that is always uh, a great plus, I think.
0: You have a reputation for doing horror. You did a very nice teaser for this, kind of jokingly referencing the, the cooking and the human flesh elements, but the play seems to be about so much more than that, so how do you kind of balance kind of audience expectations of you and and what you actually get
1: well i think you have i mean the thing about i love this play and i think that ben brand is an amazingly talented writer and i want to be able to say that i was the one who first put him on stage but i think you know going all the way back to shakespeare shakespeare knew that he had to have some things to keep the groundlings interested he had to be plucking out eyeballs you know he he had to be chopping off hands. You know, he had to be doing things that, you know, Julius Caesar's assassination is very bloody. the it, I mean, way it's described in the script. But, but then he has that absolutely, you know, amazing poetry. And, you know, and I feel that this play is similar in a way, that it has a lot to say, but it also, uh, it has these moments that are sensational.
0: Now, you are a filmmaker as well as a stage director. Do you think this works best as a play? Do you think it could work as a film, or what? Like
1: well, well, I think that if this was a film, it wouldn't be as unique as it is. You see, that's the word, the key word in this. You know, it's uh, there's something about doing it live on stage that really makes it special.
0: Did you find any particular challenges of doing this in in this venue because it is? kind of small and I mean was it better for you do you think that the audience is this close yeah I love
1: having the audience close like this you know I that's that's the thing about theater that I really like I, you know I feel sometimes when you go to see these big productions you're a million miles away and it's like uh, you know you don't really get that sense of uh, that it's alive and it's really happening right before your eyes and that's what's nice about a little theater like this
0: now, tonight was your first performance. Yes. Um, and you did have some talk back with the audience. How helpful is that to you to have these kind of preview performances with interaction with the audience? It's
1: a, it's essential for me. It's really great to be able to talk to them about what they liked, what they didn't like, what they got, what they didn't get. You know, the, there's always some key piece of information that you forget to put into the play. That's some, one of the things I've always found. And the audience is the one that reminds you.
0: And you have some pretty um, high-caliber audience members here, too. You have Barbara Crampton, you had Dante.
1: <laughs> I know, it was quite, it was a star-studded audience, you know, Mick Garris was here. I mean, it was really, uh, it was fantastic, and um, you know, I was very honored that they came to see the first performance.
0: How would you compare putting on a, a small production like this with trying to make an independent film? I mean, do you feel that one is more difficult than the other, or are they both equally challenging?
1: well they're di- they're challenging for different reasons I, I, you know I always feel that theater is what separates the men from the boys because you can't stop it and do it over again you know as you can in a movie. M- my feeling has always been that both film and theater are about the actor and uh, you know I, I'm very very lucky to have such great actors in this
0: seeing this for the in its first preview performance with an audience, uh, were there any like surprises for you in terms of how the audience responded or yeah there's
1: it was constantly surprising to me you know things that were where they were laughing and things where I thought they would and they didn't or you know uh, it was kind of hard to, to to gauge some of the things so seeing it a couple more times with an audience is going to be really useful
0: now we have had recently incidents of cannibalism where this is actually based on a real story from yes. 10 years ago I, I mean do you think there's uh, some sort of inherent interest in that, or do you, I mean, was any of the that kind of an aspect of it?
1: Well, I do think, it's, it is amazing to me that y- there's so much about cannibalism in the, the papers these days. When we first announced that we were going to do this, it got more, uh, the response to this was bigger than any play or movie I've ever done. It was just like, uh, it went through the roof, and I was, I sort of felt like we were hitting a nerve here, pardon the expression. And,
0: and I mean, do you think kind of that that is a bit of a hook to get the audience's attention, and that there is like a lot more to this, and that it's going to surprise people? I
1: think that it's, that the play is is very touching. It really is a love story, and in a sense, it's like their whole a relationship from beginning to end. You know, uh, you know, boiled down to like you know an hour and a half. But I think if you were t- told the audience that that's what they were coming to see, that they would never buy a single ticket. You know that's the thing that's great about it is that the um, it, it has a hook and it's uh, and it is based on a true story, which I think is it's it's remarkably close to that true story actually.
0: And is it going to be hard to promote it though? Because there is it's it's kind of like um, you know the audience that might initially come based on the story is going to be surprised by what they get, but there's a whole audience out there that I think would really appreciate this, but might be kind of put off by it, thinking that it's just a whole, you know.
1: Well, there are those who are never going to like horror no matter what you do. And I just kind of think it isn't for everyone. You know, that those who uh, appreciate it I think will, will come and those who don't want to have anything to do with it won't.
0: Talk a little bit about horror in the sense that I think people think of it a lot of times in a very limiting sort of definition of the genre. And this really pushes...
1: Well, again, going back to Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare used horror in, you know, to keep the groundlings interested, you know, to keep the, keep the play moving along. You know, King Lear, which is considered sometimes to be his greatest play, you know, has a guy's eyes being gouged out on stage. You know, he, he, he uses gore effects in his plays a lot. You know, I mean, Titus Andronicus, it's like wall-to-wall carnage, really. But, uh, you know, even, even in, uh, you know, all of his tragedies, he, you know, I think he's trying to, you know, if he were to just present poetry, uh, you know, and we wouldn't remember him today.
0: And just for a personal question, uh, what's the status on Nevermore being made into a film and Reanimator ever coming back?
1: Well, we're working on both of those things. You know, it, it, everything takes forever,
0: but uh, we, haven't, we haven't given up. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Stuart Gordon talking about the play Taste. I asked playwright Benjamin Brandt how he discovered the story of Armin Muse.
4: A friend of mine actually sent me a link to the original news story, or at least the original story when the man who was the man was convicted of having eaten, of having killed and eaten another man. And I read it and I thought, God, what in the world motivates these two men? Both of them were kind of um, seemed very unknowable, and that was un- that was interesting to me. And I just kept thinking about them. And I kept thinking, how in the world would you try to tell this story? And I couldn't figure it out. And I wound up having dinner. It must have been right after I would read about it, uh, about the conviction. Uh, I had dinner with a friend. And I said, I, I think there's a movie in here, initially, is what I thought. I said, but I can't figure out what happens in the story aside from the night that they meet and do this thing. And he said, well, why don't you write the movie just about that? And uh, so I, I wrote it. Uh, it was initially intended to be a, it was a screenplay, and, but it was in a single location and it was told in real time, which obviously is the same with the play. And uh, I just felt, initially at least, that obviously there was this sort of prurient appeal of the story and this question, how do these guys decide to do this thing? And then when I started writing it, I think what excited me the most was the idea that on the surface they seemed to be opposites. One of them is dominant, one of them is submissive, one of them is the perpetrator, one of them is the victim. But that over the course of me writing it, discovering that in fact they were basically two sides of the same coin. And once I figured that out, and I'm putting it in quotes because I think anybody who looks at it would realize that. Once I figured that out, it was was a very kind of athletic writing experience. I wrote it very quickly and it was done.
0: Now, did you do research into who these people were or did you just make everything
4: up? I did very little research. I read the initial story of um, the conviction of the man who did the eating and um, I started to write it and at some point in the middle of writing it I must have gotten stuck or something and I went online and started reading a longer article about what happened and in the article I read something that was so counter to the characters that I was creating that I stopped. Um, I read that uh, the Terry character, the man I'm calling Terry, um, in the middle of it, as this other guy was dying in a bathtub, which already seemed wrong to me, stopped to read a Star Trek novel or a Star Wars novel. And already there was too much emotional intensity between these two guys for such a thing to happen. And I just said, I don't want to read any more about the real case because I'm off in my own creative space with them. And so I stopped. I think that there are... A few things in the play that are from the original story, but what actually transpires between these two men is, a, is, a, is an act of imagi- a work of imagination. It's not really based on what actually happened, as far as I know.
0: Now, you wrote this intending it to be a film. Mm-hmm. How do you feel seeing it as a play?
4: It's so much more intense as a play, and I was unprepared for that. I think somewhere in my mind, as I was writing it initially as a screenplay... I knew that whoever was going to direct it was going to be able to cut, was going to be able to edit. And so things that you see quite baldly on the stage, in the film, the film that was in my head at least, I thought, oh, well, they'll cut around this. So um, the scene where Terry is, is masturbating Vic, I thought, well, you'll just see a shot of his shoulder and you'll see it moving up and down and then you'll see a reaction shot of Vic and you'll see his head tilt back and you'll, it'll be implied what's going on but suddenly it's on stage and you're seeing what's on the television and you're seeing these two actors perform this activity and it's it's very startling and so all of the sexuality all of the violence is so much more it's so much more intense than I think the film that I was playing in my head as I wrote it once it became a stage play that the process of turning it into a stage play was very simple there were probably two or three Things that were in the screenplay that were clearly visual—a close-up of something that was going to explain the story—and I would have to add a line of dialogue to clarify. He says, "But oh, these are just magazine cutouts." He doesn't. In the film, in the screenplay, there was just a shot, and you understood what it was. Um, but basically, there were no ch- no real meaningful changes between the screenplay and the stage play. And I thought, well, it'll just be the same thing. As far as I know, it's not the same thing at all. It's much more. It's a much more visceral experience, I think, as a stage production, at least compared to, again, the
0: movie that's in my head. Well, and do you think it was also intensified by the fact that this is a small theater where the audience is practically in the laps of the actor? Literally in, in part of the...
4: <laughs> yes, I mean, look, there, the experience of smelling food, smelling food that's being cooked, it does make you feel that you're in this apartment with these two guys, and there is a feeling of my God, I'm trapped in a cage with with not just one lion, but two lions. And, you know, I know that there's an exit at the theater, but I didn't see anybody going out. Um, And I think that it's more, it's maybe more powerful. And if you're sitting, especially in these front couple rows, you're on the same eye level as these two men. And they're sitting right next to you. And the sweat on their brows is real. And the sweat stains on their backs are real. And... The smell of onions that's coming through the into the audience is real and obviously the whole thing is performance and I know it's fiction, I know it's fake, and I know I wrote it, but I'm having an experience that seems counter to what I know in my head is really going on. I'm moved by things that I wrote myself, seeing these guys perform them, and I'll think, I know this story this guy is telling here is a lie, and yet I'm being moved along with him and maybe that has to do with the smallness of the space, I don't know and maybe this is also because I wrote it so long ago that I'm watching it I don't feel exactly like I'm watching it as the person who wrote it, I feel like I'm watching it as as an audience member and that's pretty exciting
0: Is this the first play you've written? Is your other work been screenplays? I've only,
4: yeah, this is the first play that I've ever written. I've written screenplays and I've written television and uh and in effect this obviously was written as a screenplay but it became a stage play and you know Stuart was really Stuart was really I think the person who figured out that it could be a stage play I think turning it into a stage play for me felt like oh, this is so easy I'll just change these few lines that seem too filmic or this close-up here I'll add this line of dialogue and it was Stuart who sort of Stuart had to do the work Stuart had to really make this thing happen in a, in a theater space you know, under this little proscenium here. I don't know, I feel like it's obviously my script and the actors are doing exactly what I have written and yet at the same time I feel like it's Stewart's play. It's also, this is why I feel like I can watch it a little bit as an outsider.
0: Yeah, Stewart had done like a little teaser for it, a video teaser, where it was very clear that there was gonna be some sort of eating of human flesh in the, mm-hmm. in the play. Um, it's a play that on one level can be called horror, um, and yet it really expands kind of what I think most people's definition of horror is. Mm -hmm. So, how do you think you're, how difficult is it going to be to find the right audience for this because it seems to be multiple things?
4: You know, when I first met with Stuart, he started to refer to it as horror. And I said, oh, I don't think this is horror. And Stuart said, oh, you're not one of those people, are you? (laughs) And I fear that I might be. I don't see it as a horror, I don't see it in the horror genre, I see it as a dramatic piece that has these sort of transgressive or violent elements, but to me it's a drama. I think to Stewart, it, it, uh, it is in the horror genre, and because I am not the director of the play, I accept Stewart's vision, and I'm enthusiastic about Stewart's vision, and he, believe me, he's the one doing all of this work. I don't know who the audience, I'm telling you this very candidly, I don't know who the audience is for this play. If it turns out it's going to be horror fans, terrific. If it turns out it's going to be theater-going fans who want to see something that's a little transgressive, great. I wrote the thing that somehow, (laughs) sometimes people say, like, why did you write this? And I think, as I think of most things that I've written that aren't works for hire, I think I wrote it because I was able to reach the ending. I reached the ending of this play and I said, okay, now we'll see what happens in the world with it. And if Stuart says it's a, it's a horror play, then that's what it is. And he'll know who's going to come to it. If it's not a horror play, then somebody else will come to it. Or I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. I feel like I was speaking in paragraphs there. I'm not sure. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> who's going to come to this play? You tell me. That was taste playwright Benjamin Brand. And to conclude this podcast, let's look to a little cannibal history with Dr. Emily Anderson. She was the director of exhibit development at the San Diego Museum of Man when the cannibal exhibit was installed almost a year ago to the day. I took a walk through the exhibit with her to discuss cannibalism through history, and to
3: compare myth
0: with reality.
3: Okay, so we are in the apothecary shop. So this is sort of our recreation of a mid 1700s apothecary shop. Uh, And we use this section to talk about the practice in Europe, the very prevalent and mainstream medical practice of prescribing medicine made from human body parts. So at the same time that Europeans are going out around the world, meeting people they didn't understand, and using cannibalism as one of the ways to really reinforce that difference and saying these people are not like us because they eat other people back in Europe Medicine was made from human body parts and prescribed regularly to people for a number of different ailments. So corpse medicine is basically the practice of um, prescribing or ingesting medicine that's made from human bodies. So I would say that probably because at the time the word cannibalism was used to describe behavior of other people who seemed unfamiliar. Rather than calling it cannibal medicine, people would call it corpse medicine because it really distanced it from that idea of sort of a, an abnormal behavior of consuming someone else's flesh and, you know, corpse sounds much more clinical. But really, how is this different from cannibalism? So what's this little interactive section you have here? This is our diagnostic machine for human-based medicine. So basically you'll go through and select the different things that apply to you. So you know, 31 to 45 for age, let's say I've been in a bar fight um, and I am prone to violence. Um, And I also get nosebleeds. And at work, maybe I also use sharp objects. And we add this up, so i got 6, 8, 11, 13. And over here, when I look at my prescription guide, 13 gives me mummy dust. And these are the most common forms of human-based medicine that we have available. And mummy dust in this drawer. Here is my prescription. And it tells that each sheet, which is something a visitor can take home with them, tells you what things are made from and also what it would be prescribed for. So, mummy dust is basically made actually from mummy, and it could be taken orally to reduce bruising or to improve overall health.
0: So, we just went through, got a prescription mm-hmm. for mummy dust. There's kind of a small amount of mummies in the world yeah. to pull from. So, where were they creating this kind of
3: stuff? So, some were actually imported from Egypt, and also there were mummies they called Arabia mummies. These were people who were dead and buried in the desert, who were then... Um, Brought into Europe, but when they when the supply ran low, they actually started creating sort of artificially rapidly mummified bodies in Europe, and there are actual recipes that we can find in books from this period that explain how you mummify a corpse, and then they would use those for the medicine made from mummies.
0: Another interesting thing on your list here, because on the wall here we've got a list of remedies, but.
3: Skull moss. Mm -hmm. So skull moss refers to a kind of fungus that grows on the back of skulls that have been exposed to the air. And the main supplier of these skulls were basically the battlefields of Europe. This is a period when there were wars happening all the time, either for conquest or for religious reasons. And especially in the case of Germany, uh, apparently in Germany, uh, the skulls that came from the battlefields in Ireland were especially popular. So there was a whole business of exporting skulls from the Irish battlefields to the continent to continental europe executions often happened um, much more easily probably than they do now and so there was um, this is kind of a coolish thing to say but there was a supply of bodies um, for the demand in medicine made from human body parts
0: And again, remind me of what the time frame is for this.
3: So we're really talking about the 16, 1700s here, but there are accounts into the 1800s, 1830s, of people taking medicine made from human body parts in Europe.
0: So when we're talking about people using this medicine, Mm -hmm. are we talking about people like in the aristocracy using it and then the bodies coming mostly from the poor?
3: Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question because I think Part of us wants to think of this as sort of a fringe or maybe folk um, type of medicine, but this is very mainstream, advocated by the leading um, people of science, and absolutely. Uh, one of the most famous users of this kind of medicine was King Charles II of England, and in fact, he had his own laboratory, and there is a kind of ground up skull that they called King's Drops after him. Yeah. There was a pope who was treated using the blood of two young men who were still living and then subsequently died for an ailment. Again, a lot of the bodies were sort of came through execution, so it was, um, there is a class dynamic, of course, at work here, where the poor were more likely to be executed, and then those bodies would, um, some would be used for other kinds of scientific research, but some would get sort of shifted into the market for medicine.
0: And something that probably is less surprising to people as being part of this apothecary is blood.
3: So what's really interesting is um, that during this time, fresh blood is probably, at least from the what I've looked into, uh, you know, the research that scholars have done who study this, the taking of blood was the mo- one of the most public ways that um, human-based medicine was ingested because one, it was often used for um, restoring health or prolonging life, but one very specific use of it was um, attempts to cure epilepsy. And those people actually would, take, would gather the blood at the site of executions. And so, literally, when someone was beheaded, there are all sorts of eyewitness accounts of, of people standing with a cup, waiting for this blood to come out of the executed person, drinking it on the spot and then running as quickly as they could because part of the actual prescription was to get it circulating through your body as quickly as you could by sort of what they called vigorous running or vigorous exercise. And you had to run until you sort of collapsed from exhaustion. And so this was done in public. People knew what was happening. Um, And so it's a very specific use, but also this idea that from the blood, especially from a healthy young man who who died a quick violent death, that the life force would be contained in that blood and that could be transferred to another individual, which is where this idea that it could restore health or prolong life came from.
0: So you talk about this as kind of being a sort of science that Mm -hmm. King Charles had his own kind of lab for this. Is there any science to back up whether or not any of this stuff did any good or could it have done harm?
3: It's a good question. Uh, Since I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not entirely sure, but you know, I think, there are There are things that are practiced now that um that seem to parallel or are similar to to some of the practices that were prevalent a few hundred years ago. And you know, I mean, one example which may sound sort of gross, but human fat was used topically um, on areas to ease aches and pains. And you know that lanolin, I mean, that's basically sheep's fat. So is there a difference? You know, in, in once you get away from sort of the the morality question that we might impose onto the human fat, then maybe I mean, was it better than other kinds of fat? Maybe not. But I think that certainly there there's something about the use of animal fat for certain kinds of things that we see happen you know outside of um this context so Beyond that, it's a good question. I, I'm curious myself. All right,
0: so um, tell me what this book
3: is. Sure, so this is basically um, a reproduction of a book that existed that would have been a manual for um, apothecaries in um, the mid-1700s. And the original was in Latin, so would have been, you know, so this is the English translation of something that, that would have circulated more widely. And in this book is an entire section on medicine made from people. So we have everything from hair, Nail, saliva, earwax, menstrual blood, the placenta is in here as well which is something that is again, placenta is something that is still consider- is considered powerful, again, um, urine. Human dung, to read sort of one of the, the most, uh, just to give you an idea of some of the language around this, it says, the semen or sperm is whimsically used by some for dissolving the malefic influence of spells causing impotence. Human uh, stones in the human bladder. We have an entire section on mummy. Again, something that was popular. Skin, fat, bones, marrow, the cranium, and the heart. So as you can see, again, this is something that's very mainstream that would appear in a typical, I mean, this would probably be like a a pharmacist manual to explain what kind of medicines exist, how to prepare them, and what to prescribe them for. And that is um, here in our apothecary shop, just like it probably would have been back in the 1700s. So
0: tell me, how did this decision, or how did this cannibal exhibit come about?
3: So, you know, here at the San Diego Museum of Man, we're really interested in looking at topics that might it makes some people a little uncomfortable, but actually if you explore them sort of with sensitivity and thought, you discover that there's more that unites people than divides us. And cannibals is certainly one of those topics where it's become a great taboo and it's often considered something that separates people or, you know, it's how you, you can't imagine empathizing with or relating to a cannibal. But actually it's much more common, has happened across the world in human history. And when you actually examine the real stories of cannibalism, there's a lot more in those that brings us together than it does separate us. So I think it it is just a very compelling and provocative topic. And we wanted to take the risk of looking into this.
0: Now, behind you are Mm -hmm. quite a few images from pop culture. So Mm -hmm. talk about what this entryway is supposed to do for you.
3: Sure. So what we really wanted to do with this first section was to have for our visitors some of the reference points that probably leap into their mind the second they hear the word. Now, cannibals isn't something that most people. People sit around and think about, but when they hear the words, certainly their associations they make immediately. Whether that's characters in movies or TV shows, or uh, we include literary references, artistic references. But we wanted to begin, um, you know, establishing a common ground. So having in the beginning all the ways that the negative associations with cannibals is reinforced in our minds through contemporary to historic popular culture, and that's where we begin in this exhibit. One of the, the sections of the exhibit deals
0: with a very accepted kind of cannibalism, which happened during Mm shipwrecks. So talk about that portion of history.
3: Absolutely. So I mean, this is something that I find really um, ironic and, and surprising is that, especially in the 1800s, so this is a time when Europeans are exploring um, even more around the world and are using the label of cannibalism to really look down on a lot of people, that other people from other cultures. At the same time, when these ships um, happen to shipwreck, usually in the Atlantic because there's so much uh, traffic there, if, some, if there was a group of people who would survived and ran out of food, it was acceptable, socially acceptable for them to kill somebody in that group in order for the rest to survive. It was considered sort of an unpleasant but necessary practice. It was called the custom of the sea, and there were even rules about it. Uh, basically you drew straws, and the person who drew the shortest straw was the one who was eaten, and the second shortest would have to do the act of killing. There are accounts as early as the 1600s, but it really hits a peak in the 1800s. These are things that are talked about in the news. Songs are written about them. Some of the survivors write stories. They're not hidden, they're not secret. And it's not until 1884 when, so- when a group of men who had killed the cabin boy to survive in a shipwreck were actually charged with murder in, um, in the British courts. So in the 1800s this happened. Not all the time, but frequently enough that people would have been familiar with it.
0: And the exhibit also tackles a question that that kind of raises with, the um, athletes who were uh, plane crashed in the Andes. So yeah. it's a similar, it's a parallel kind of situation in that you have not shipwrecked, mm-hmm. but plane wrecked. So talk about how you yeah. set that in this exhibit.
3: So one of the things we really wanted to do in this exhibit is to ask our visitors to step into the shoes of people who are faced with really difficult decisions. And for them to think about, given the same circumstances, would I make the same choices? Can I empathize with this person? Do I understand what this per- what happened? And in the case of the you're Uruguay- going Rugby team who was plane crash in the Andes in 1972. Um, they we we feature clips from a documentary done by them where they talk about the decisions that they made and how they arrived at the decision to eat the the dead who were mostly their friends, people that they knew. And for them, they really they talk about one how. They couldn't face their family without knowing they had tried everything to survive. If that had been the difference between life and death and their mother discovered that, you know, they didn't eat a person, that's why they died, that how could they live with that? Doing everything necessary seemed like the right choice. But also for them, it was a very spiritual experience that, you know, it felt like this, their friends had made this incredible sacrifice by their bodies being consumed and that they would really treasure and honor that uh, that sacrifice. And they talk about their experiences in incredibly profound and moving ways.
0: So would you say that the main goal of the exhibit is to kind of um, Challenge stereotypes.
3: Absolutely, um, you know. At the end of the exhibit, we want our visitors to ask themselves, you know, can I can I understand cannibals or are it people who have been labeled cannibals people that I feel like I have more in common with, whether or not they really were cannibals, but can I can I relate to them better? Could I be a cannibal? And is that something that is? You know, There isn't a right or wrong answer here, but we do want to challenge stereotypes and challenge our visitors to really push the boundaries a little bit and think about where where they stand with this topic.
0: All right, so explain to me where we are that this is the end of the exhibit. Yeah,
3: so this is the end of the exhibit, and what we really wanted to have happen here is for visitors who, you know, we've, we've pushed them a little bit. We've probably made them sort of kind of come out of their comfort zones. We've talked about different ways that cannibalism might be a lot more familiar to them than they would think, maybe help change their mind about something or at least change the definition. And now we, what we want them to do is think about what are the things um, that they might do or that their friends or you know, people that they know might do that might be construed as cannibalism. And specifically, here we have this magnet wall where we can put up different human-based things like blood. And would you consider the ingestion of blood cannibalism? What about boogers? Um, yours or somebody else's? Um, what about cremated remains? If you snort somebody's cremains, is that cannibalism or not? And this is really just a fun way to end this exhibit, where you think about like what what are the things that are familiar to you um, that you've never considered cannibalism that might be might now fall under the category of cannibalism.
0: That was Dr. Emily Anderson. Thanks for listening to what I hope was a tasty edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes or like the Cinema Junkie Facebook page. I'll have a new interview with Stuart Gordon coming up about the 40th anniversary revival of his adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan, as well as a show celebrating Casablanca's 75th anniversary. So, Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.